Hey, this is Danny Heifetz from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Craig Horlbeck, and Danny Kelly. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Benning and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case and the semi-animated In the Know from Mike Judge and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Traitors. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Wednesday, August 9th. Hollywood these days is a gerontocracy, meaning it's an industry governed by old people become a running joke around town. Many of the same stars that mattered most in the 80s and 90s, Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, Sandra Bullock, Will Smith, Denzel, they're still the stars who matter most to moviegoers. And the top leaders, the people who run the studios, the streamers, the talent agencies, they're all over 50. Many are over 60. And some, like Bob Iger at Disney, Tony Vinciquera and Tom Rothman at Sony Pictures, John Feldheimer at Lionsgate, are either past or almost 70. Nothing is older people, of course. We live and work longer these days than we did even a generation ago. But this is definitely a change from previous eras in entertainment, where young stars held all the power and studio VPs were in their 20s. You could be a production head by 30. People like Barry Diller was running Paramount at 32. Sherry Lansing was president of production at Fox at 35. Mike DeLuca had Greenlight Power at New Line at 27. The so-called Young Turks took over CAA in their 30s. It was a business of youth culture run by actual young people. But the funny thing is, many of these people are still running the business. The CAA guys are now the old Turks. DeLuca is chairman of Warner Brothers, and while his slate is bigger than it was at New Line, he arguably has the same job he did in the 90s. So why is this, and why does it matter? It's an interesting question, and I wanted someone on the show who was there in the 80s and 90s to compare and contrast the eras. Rick Nesita is the former co-chair and managing partner of CAA. He was an agent for 40 years with clients like Tom Cruise, Al Pacino, Nicole Kidman, Rob Reiner, Sally Field. He's now a producer. He's seen it all. He's a great lunch date, by the way. And he agreed to come on and help me answer the question. Is it a problem that everyone in power in Hollywood is old? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rick Nasita. Rick is the perfect guy to have on to talk about this because he was at CAA in the heyday of the 80s, 90s, the transition from the Mike Ovitz, Ron Meyer days to the Young Turks who took over CAA and turned it into what it is today and are still there. <laughs> they, they have not left. And I want to get into this question of why everyone in Hollywood is still there and why they are stuck around, and what the implications are, and whether this is even a problem. So first of all, welcome, Rick. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. So tell me about that dynamic, 
when you are running CAA and your counterparts at the studios are all contemporaries, meaning they're people in their 20s and 30s. Because there's two aspects of this, I want to say. First is like, how did this happen? How did the aging of the executive class and of the people running this town happen? And B, whether there, there are implications and whether it's actually a problem. So let's get into the first part. What was it like back in the 80s and 90s when you were negotiating across the table from people in their 20s and 30s and your peers? I think you have to look back to how the business was just before them, because things go through cycles, as you know. Mm -hmm. And let me give you an example. With uh, I was not one of the founders of CAA. I was what we call second wave, like uh, four or five years later than when Mike and Ronnie uh, and the other guys did it. But I was at William Morris then. And William Morris then was run by management who weren't even agents. They were older guys, older by any sense of what older is, who yeah. were disconnected from the clients and very disconnected from the business. The perfect example of what went on then and why things had to change is uh, it's actually a story Ron Meyer tells, but I'll co-opt Ronnie and, and tell one of the founders of CAA. Yes. Yeah. He was in a meeting just before they, they left uh, to form CAA. And it was announced that sadly, Steve McQueen has left the agency. He's been poached by uh, another uh, another agency. And, and I uh, do need to say Steve McQueen, the actor, not Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah, the sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Steve McQueen won was approached by another agency, one of the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. And the president of the agent of William Morrison, older man named Sam Weisbord, immediately pipes up and goes, yes, that's too bad, but I have great news. We just signed Ann Miller. Who is Ann Miller? Do you know? I do not. Oh, I guess wow. The answer to that is probably exactly. That's but yes. my point. She yes. was a big dancer, movie stars of the 40s. <laughs> in the 40s. And that was the comeback. Right. So the agency world and the business at large was out of touch in the 70s. There's this youth quake where young people take over the famous era at Paramount and the studios start making the great movies. And the agencies reflected that with the founding of CAA and the other sort of modern talent agencies. And that's where you come in. What was the dynamic like then? Did you get a sense that this was a young person's business run by young people? Yes, you had to have a certain amount of experience, but you know, agents go through the mailroom and you'd be amazed at, at the calluses you develop in a relatively short time working in an agency. In other words, you experience comes fast. Sure. Well, and, and the young clients were the ones that were driving the business. I mean, this is what I've said is that the agents only have power through their clients. And when there are young clients that are driving the business and that matter, to the business, the agencies and the agents themselves amass power. Right. And the young agents connect with young clients. A focus was shifting, I'd say, in the late 60s and moving on to a youth culture. And right. that would result in young executives and young agents. Right. Well, I mean, youth was being served then. In answer to how did it feel to be dealing with my peers? Totally normal. That's the way it should be. Right. Okay. So then let's flash forward to now, to today. 
That is not the case. If you are a young agent at CAA, you know, you've got a hot client, you're in your 30s, chances are the person with the power at the studio is probably 50, 60, even older than that. How did that happen? There's several reasons. I think one of the reasons that the financial stakes of all decisions got higher, higher and higher and higher, that back then movies were cheap enough so that you could follow your gut. And that's that's how the business was not a business of algorithms, hardly a business of research. It was a business of pure gut. I like that. I like that script. I like that actor. That deal feels right. It was a singular gut judgment. And you could afford to do it because success could bring you uh, major, major financial returns, but failure wouldn't kill you. Failure wouldn't mean, oh my God, jobs are lost, mm-hmm. stock plummets. So you could take those chances. And as things got higher and higher in studios, and agencies were bought by bigger and bigger corporations. They wanted something that they thought was safer, which I think is a false word. Nothing is safe, but to them, safer. They became more conservative. So you would want a, an executive who had a resume, who felt that they had done something, who, again, was safe, who wasn't going to come in one day telling you about this gut feeling he or she had about making some strange story that's never been made before. Brand managers, essentially. That's I've used that term where the executives became brand managers, where instead of, you know, you've got X amount of money to take your shots on whatever your creative gut tells you the, the public wants, you've got slots to fill and you have to manage these various franchise brands and try to turn them into something bigger than what they were before but you're not judged based on your creative gut. I also think that that's allowed people to stay in these jobs. Absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about how, you know, there weren't stakes. The, the stakes were not as higher for those earlier executives. But I would argue that when you come in with a particular perspective and taste that, yeah, that will work for a little while, but at some point it's not going to work as well. And then you are vulnerable to being replaced. And when you come in as a brand manager of a studio and you're someone like Tom Rothman or Donna Langley at Universal, Tom's at at Sony, you're more of a survivor because you don't have any particular personal stake in anything. You are just the person making the brand decisions, and that gives you more longevity. Look, people say, and it's common knowledge, the business isn't making movie stars anymore. But the movie business is not making star executives anymore because for the very reasons you just said, without risks being taken, there's no reward that spotlights the person who did the risk. If the main thing you're doing at a studio is being responsible for when to date the eighth picture in the franchise, when to get it out there, that's not going to, they're not going to go, what a fabulous executive that is. But the executive who comes up with a, a given brand new hit movie, that makes the stars. So there's no opportunity, in my opinion, for executives to be stars. They can inch their way up the corporate ladder, but there's no way to become a star. So why replace the older executive? Nobody's come in to knock them out. There's no coup. There's no 
boy, that, that guy's coming. No way to stop him. He's got the golden touch. Let's make him, uh, let's make him our president. No. Well, and there's no way for a person to even have that reputation no. anymore. I mean, they don't get it. No, it back. They don't get it at back. How do you, how do you get a hit? I was at a dinner with some producers last night and someone was explaining to me that if you were a VP at a studio in the 90s and 2000s, you had more power to buy a film project than the president of a studio has today. Yeah, it's so funny. Development budgets were just so much bigger and you could take more swings after. And he was actually saying after the strike of 2007, 2008, the development budgets were just slashed so much that to get anything bought, it had to go all the way to the top. And then that turns into a conversation between the head of the studio and an agent. And typically, the agents that have relationships with the heads of the studios are people that have known them for decades. And it's the same people over and over again. So you can't even, as a young agent, develop a strong relationship with a buyer with power because the people at your level don't have any power. I remember the days, without sounding too much like a fossil, where you could (laughs) submit a script on a Friday to a a studio head who was accessible to On Monday, you could get a call saying, read it over the weekend, like it a lot. Let's move forward with this budgeted. Let's let's head towards making this. That's over a weekend. Yeah, the assistant sends the cashier's check. Your client gets the check on Thursday, and he's in Vegas with showgirls on Friday. <laughs> Ooh, <I> like <laughs> no, I, you know, you know what I'm. But I'm what I'm saying is just the dynamic has completely changed towards a a system that entrenches the leadership of the past and yes. just keeps them there. Because, and it's symbiotic, I guess, because IP is what drives the business now. Why? Again, this word safer. It's branded so it can travel the world better. And because of bigger budgets, you need something that appeals to everyone, as opposed to finding a specific audience, getting that and hoping you can expand it. You have to aim at the broad audience. And stars don't come out of IP either in the executive ranks or the actor ranks. just doesn't make them. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. What do you think about this notion that the best and brightest young people that used to flock to Hollywood because you could make a ton of money and you could get rich and maybe even famous as an executive, those people are no longer coming to entertainment to make their name. They're going to tech. 
And because of that, the quality of the executives amongst the younger generations is not there. I've talked to Jeffrey Katzenberg about this because he has said that, you know, when he was young, he didn't have a particular background in entertainment. He just wanted to be a player. He wanted to matter and he wanted to rise through the ranks and be powerful and influential. And the way to do that was to come to Hollywood and make a name for yourself. And obviously he did. The Jeffrey Katzenberg of today is probably moving to San Francisco and working at an AI startup. I think that Hollywood's no Hollywood, the metaphorical mm-hmm. Hollywood, is no longer the destination because it's not exciting and creative and allowing for fast moving forward, just like you said. At one point, the best people were supposed to go into politics. That was how. <laughs> how the At what point was that? And, uh, it was uh, before my time, but that's mm. how the system was designed. Or sure. Then it segued into Hollywood, entertainment, media, that kind of thing. That's where the young people said, I want to go there. Now it's static. It's not a place for creative freedom. It doesn't breed that. It doesn't encourage that. Now it's moved on to tech because the tech world is ever growing. But I wonder back in the 80s and 90s when you like the assistant class of the 80s and 90s, you hear the stories about people graduating Harvard Law and working in the CAA mailroom. You don't hear as much about that today. They're really not. It's just not a destination anymore. And I think we've done that. We've caused that because of a lack of innovation, too much corporatization, not enough artistic risk-taking. Art can only flourish with the new. Everybody talks about, and rightly so, about AI. AI will not promote art because AI only exists on a synthesis of data that has been inputted and then it rearranges it. It doesn't create and that's a fatal flaw for the entertainment business to thrive. It'll always exist. For it to thrive, there has to be artistic risk-taking, not just tolerated, but encouraged. And it's not there now. It gets to the second point about whether any of this matters. And do you draw a direct line between the aging of Hollywood and the entrenched class and what's happening at the box office right now. I mean, we saw this summer, I know you're close with Tom Cruise, so we don't, we don't want to criticize him, but we saw a number of movies this summer that were cookie cutter, safe bets in the past pre-COVID regime. They would have been giant hits like Indiana Jones 5 or Fast 10. And audiences are sort of pulling back from those films. And they are gravitating, at least this summer, towards things that at least feel different or fresh, like a Mario Brothers or Barbie or Oppenheimer, where these movies that are the same, but different. That's the reason is, as you said, self-explanatory. It's it's interesting. If you look at Barbie, just step back from it. Mm -hmm. They picked a brand that everyone knows and made a movie about it. What they did was have a different take on it. That's the case. It's not so much the fatal flaw of just doing the well-known brand. No, that's all. I mean, everyone's like, oh, Hollywood's reliant on IP. Hollywood has always been reliant on IP. The Godfather was a very popular book before it was a movie. I mean, going all the way back to the beginning of Hollywood, where Walt Disney was remaking very popular fairy tales. The industry has always thrived on 
known IP. It's just the kind of IP that we're using these days sometimes feels a little stupid. But Barbie is just is in a long tradition of known product that is given a fresh take. Hollywood's always played out whatever trend it thinks is safe Mm -hmm. until it no longer is. And maybe, just maybe, a lot of these franchises and styles, calling superheroes a franchise style, it's showing that it's starting to play itself out. That's got to be realized, though, and understood that the, the thing that makes these movies like Barbie and Oppenheimer hits are fresh takes on something that you might say is familiar. It's not just the repetition of familiar on a bigger budget. I don't think the answer to Barbie, the follow-up should be, what other dolls can we make movies about? It should you're, be- You're not in line for the Lena Dunham uh, Polly movie? Uh, it's a great, <laughs> not, I don't, it could be good. It could be good. I don't want to pass judgment. Good. Do you think we are in a moment right now similar to the early 70s where the superhero, IP-driven, Disney just remaking its animated films, that we are in a moment of malaise that is going to be the catalyst for an upheaval that will give us a new generation of exciting and very profitable films. I sure hope so. And I think we very well... But are you seeing signs? Are you seeing the same kinds of signs that were there when you were experiencing it before? Yes, but because the old ways is starting to show its flaws, very much Mm -hmm. starting to. So the question comes, what happens now? And I like to think that people will, artists and executives will embrace the challenge. I think it's as as Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> think yeah. that this is this is what's gotta happen now. But yes, I think the moment is here, but we're gonna have to wait a few years and look back and see if the moment was seized upon. Yeah. Do you think the studios will seize upon it? I mean, there's clearly something going on in the culture right now where the movies that are successful are successful because of movements on social media that find something in the movie that is different and worth celebrating. And that, I think, is the takeaway from the post-COVID movie era so far, is that audiences are not content with more of the same and they need to feel at least like there is something new there. But how that manifests, you know, is if you were advising Disney, would you just say, guys, stop remaking your animated movies? Do something different. That's a tough thing to advocate for. People get fired for advocating things like that. But who's going to say that? Who is going to stand up and demand that? Is it going to be an older executive or a younger executive? You tell me. Younger. Uh, the odds are, is going to say, out with this stuff. Let's change. Yeah, and it takes the CEOs of these companies to take a risk on someone. Right, and they're not going to with the corporation that literally employs them. is more concerned about avoiding risk and quarterly reports. Quarterly earnings, two of the worst words (laughs) that, that I know. There are studios out there, like I think of A24, that, you know, their leaders are under 40. And they are making movies that are making a dent in the culture. Do you think that independents have a lane here to get more, uh, to become bigger and more popular because of the malaise at these studios? I think their lane to make 
pictures that the public embraces and likes on an artistic level is stronger, but the marketing costs are what production and True. marketing are but Think so of the 90s. I mean, the 80s bombast gave way to the 90s with the indie film movement. And at one point, these indie films were doing pretty big business. I know it's a different business now and, and you know, streaming has kind of changed the calculus, but there was a another kind of creative revolution in the 90s with Miramax and the others that we could see a new era of? I think we will if we can adjust the economics of it. Mm -hmm. And there's patience involved. Look, the A24, everything everywhere all at once. I mean, who knew? It was a big grocer. But again, comes back to risk-taking. As far as movie stars, why is the list of movie stars the same as big movie stars, the same as it was 10 years ago? Well, I'm asking you that question. Yeah, I think well, I know the answer, but you represented some of these people and they're still the stars. In my opinion, the answer is, again, the the IP, wanting to make movies about IP, which does not lend itself. Putting on a, a uniform and a mask does not lend itself to creating stars. But I think social media has both been good in the promotion of movies, but bad for the creation of stars because it equalizes everyone, makes them too common, not yeah. special enough. Right. Worse than all, I don't think I, you can't be a movie star without having an air of a mystery. You're too accessible now. Yeah, way too accessible. Yeah. And everybody's a star and everybody's fragmented by algorithms. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough to hit the lane for everybody. I agree with you there. All right. You represented some huge stars over the years. Give me your best movie star story. The best story that exemplifies the power of movie stars in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It can be Tom Cruise. It can be someone else. But give me your, give me your best story. I'd rather give you a story about what it's like to be an agent. All right, do it. This is many years ago, and I will not say the name of the uh, actor or actress. Okay. I get, uh, actually, was she, I mean, an actress. She uh, was going to a location, do a movie on location, uh, that where I was told she'd be out of pre-cell phone, be out of communication, be very sure. difficult. Back when you could disappear. And so to my amazement, about two weeks in, I get a call. My assistant says, Miss X is on the line. I go, whoa. I pick her, I go, how'd you get? And she goes, I got to a phone. I can't can't stay for long, but I want you to know something. I just saw the trade papers since how long ago. Was. Sure, yeah. All of my competition is working. Every one of them is working. And she named them. And I said, hey, you're working. You're calling me from location of a movie <laughs> that you're doing. And she went, you're right. I didn't think of that. She goes, you're absolutely right. So oh, my God. And hung up. That, that says a lot about the psychosis of actors i think that she was unable to recognize she was actually working she was only consumed by <laughs> jealousy of her peers hey it's a tough <laughs> business i i i forgave them all up front for anything other if they treated me with respect they're gifted the muse whispered in their ear so yeah. they have to be encouraged all right rick nasita thank you very much for coming on the show really appreciate your insights thank you man very enjoyable all right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited for ESPN Bet? Another gambling website I can't use because I live in California. I know. It's only in 16 legalized betting states, but 
It's a very big deal. ESPN getting into the gambling business, something that Bob Iger, the CEO, said they would never do. This is his quote from 2019. I don't see the Walt Disney Company, certainly in the near term, getting involved in the business of gambling. So uh, near term was the operative phrase there. Four years later, here we are. Obviously, it's a very different Walt Disney Company than it was in 2019. They need the cash. And this is going to give Disney, what is it, $1.5 billion over 10 years? Not bad. Yeah, sure. There's a bit of branding um, dissonance here with, you know, <laughs> it's nice at least is that a dad will be able to have their daughter watch Moana as he places a, a, a 10-leg parlay yeah. uh, on an NFL Sunday. So I guess that works. That's what every dad wants. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> Definitely. And that actually leads to my prediction. Everybody is watching Disney right now to figure out what Iger is going to do with all of these linear TV assets. And he's already said he wants to sell the or he's open to selling ABC, Freeform, some of the other cable networks. He says he doesn't want to sell outright ESPN right now. He just wants a strategic investor to help them compete on sports rights. But I think by taking another step here away from the core Walt Disney Company brand and doing gambling on ESPN. I think this is another step towards ESPN being spun off, sold some kind of disposition with this company because it is increasingly not part of the core product. So this is just a way to improve the the financials of ESPN and make it easier to sell off. Well, yes, and it, you know they already put ESPN in a separate division earlier this year. And a lot of people speculated that that was the first step towards potentially having a sale or a partner or some kind of a spinoff where they could load it up with debt and then have it separate from the company to make Disney itself stronger. Uh, I think that by doing this, Iger's acknowledging, first of all, that times have changed and that people are more accepting of gambling than maybe they were five years ago, but also that ESPN as a long-term going venture may not be core to the company and putting gambling there may be an expression of that. But isn't ESPN one of the only pieces of Disney that actually still makes money? Oh yeah, it makes tons of money, $3 billion in profit. We've talked about this, but it's not a growth business. And the linear channel is never going to be a growth business again. They have to figure out how to transition sports over to streaming without killing all the revenue that keeps the company afloat. That's the big challenge here. And by essentially mortgaging out the brand to gambling, uh, you can bring in some revenue. Yeah, you take a little bit of a brand hit, but most people don't care. And yeah, it's a sign of the times. Where does ESPN go? Do they go somewhere that can, you know, a, a larger company, like a, a tech company, like an Apple or an Amazon who can actually afford live sports yeah, rights? And I think that Apple and Amazon are potential investors in ESPN. They don't typically like to invest. They like to own things. So maybe there's a path to owning ESPN for these companies or private equity or someone, someone else with huge, huge pocketbooks. I don't think, you know, some are speculating that this means the entirety of Disney is going to be sold to Apple. I still don't think that that is going to happen. I just see so many regulatory problems, and I don't think Apple wants to be in the theme park business. But who knows? We're, we're getting to that point where everyone's pushing the oh shit button in Hollywood, so you never know what's going to happen. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Rick Nasita, producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.